0: Hello, I'm Beth Wiggins. Welcome to Term Talk, an FJC video podcast. This podcast is one of several short videos acquainting federal judges with the term Supreme Court holdings. With me is Lori Levinson, Professor of Law, Loyola Law School, and Emeritus Professor Evan Lee, Hastings Law School. Welcome to you both, and thank you very much for being here today.
1: Thank you, Beth.
0: Lori, let's start with Comcast versus National Association of African American-owned media. This was decided nine to zero, but there's more going on here than it may seem. Can you fill us in on the facts? Absolutely.
1: In this case, Entertainment Studios Network, which is primarily an African-American-owned network, went to Comcast to get them to carry their programming. And Comcast would not engage in that contract with them. ESN claimed that that was a racial animus in the motivation for not being involved in the contract and therefore brought an action under 1981. Now, 1981 prohibits racial discrimination, racial animus, in making contracts, and that was the case that they brought. However, the lower court, the district court, dismissed the case because they said it was not enough to allege that there was some type of racial motivation. In fact, what ESN had to show is that they didn't get the contract but for that racial animus. They needed to show that causation, and therefore the issue was, under a 1981 suit regarding racial animus and contracts, does it work more like a Title VII action, where it might be enough to make the allegation of racial motivation, or do you actually have to show the but-for causation as well as you would under a common law tort or contract action?
0: So can you help us understand the two standards just a little bit more? Both are trying to ensure racial animus is not resulting in negative outcomes, but what's the real implication?
1: Right. Well, both. Uh, title Seven and 1981 action are part of the civil rights codes that uh, we have, but there's a big difference. Under Title Seven, if you allege that racial animus is a factor, then there's burden shifting and you might be able to go forward on that action. But under 1981, the court said that's not the same type of statute. And therefore, it's not enough just to allege that there was some racial bias that is a motivating factor. You actually have to show the causation. It's the but for reason you didn't get the contract.
0: So Lori, what was their reasoning here?
1: Well, their reasoning is in Section 1981, there is no reference to how Title VII is done. And that in general, they're gonna go with what Congress has in the statute. And since Congress didn't have a different standard, contract actions in general would require that but for causation, and that's the standard they selected.
0: Evan, there's a one-person concurrence from Justice Ginsburg. She argued that focusing solely on the discriminatory result rather than considering the lack of fairness in the process that led to the result defeats the purpose of the statute. Is this argument likely to gain traction?
2: Uh, Well, that I can't say, but I can say that it's very likely that this is going to be raised uh, probably repeatedly by litigants uh, in lower courts. Um, And so it's, I think, quite plausible that this could become kind of the next big issue in uh, Section 1981 jurisprudence. And I just want to say that it is It is really an important difference that she's pointing out there that it I like to uh, sort of analogize it to uh, harmless error versus structural error, where, you know, with structural error, you're saying that this this being racial animus in the case of Section 1981, that this racial animus, you know, it poisons the whole well. And really, you it it it's. Doesn't make sense to try and figure out whether this really produced the result or wouldn't have produced the re- result in a world without racial animus. But instead, just to say, look, it's enough to say that the process was contaminated.
0: Okay. Well, the Supreme Court remanded for the court to apply the proper standard for dismissal. So what are the takeaways for the lower courts here?
1: Well, I think for the lower courts, first of all, they're going to have to look at the complaints and see if there's an allegation that there was this type of but-for causation. But as Evan pointed out, but-for causation for what? For not getting the contract in the end or for how the contract negotiations, for example, were handled? And I think that's the issue that will be coming up for the
2: lower courts.
0: Well, let's move on to the next case, Hernandez versus Mesa. Evan, can you get us started on this case?
2: Uh, Yeah, there were two teenage boys, those citizens of Mexico, and um, they were playing um, on a culvert that sits between uh, Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, and El Paso, Texas. And so uh, the Border Patrol um, observed these two boys running across the culvert, the uh, family of the victim said, "Oh, they were playing a game of tag. They were running across the border, tagging the U.S. side and then running back to uh, the Mexican side. But the bottom line is that um, uh, the patrol guard officer here, uh, Mesa, uh, shot and killed um, the 15-year-old victim, um, Hernandez. And his family brought a suit against the guard. For damages under the 1971 case of Bivens versus the six unknown uh, federal narcotics agents, uh, which in limited circumstances allows a private right of action under the Constitution itself for damages when there's no other redress. Um, this is the second um, time this case has come to the U.S. Supreme Court. The case was initially dismissed by the lower courts on Fourth Amendment grounds and Fifth Amendment grounds as well as on qualified immunity grounds. And then it was affirmed on appeal. Uh, that time around the Supreme Court remanded for a determination of whether Bivens should apply in light of the Supreme Court's 2017 decision in Ziegler versus Abbasi. And after the lower courts considered the claim under uh, the Abbasi case, the case returned to the Supreme Court which ultimately agreed, five to four, that Bivens does not apply to cross-border shootings.
0: So Laurie, in deciding this, what did the Supreme Court consider?
1: Well, I think this case, as Evan previewed, is all about keeping Bivens narrow. So what the Supreme Court basically went through is that they've only extended Bivens twice. In 1978, in Davis, They said that there could be a discrimination action directly against a uh, congressman by a congressional um, staffer. And then they extended it in another case called Carlson versus Green, but that was back in 1980. And they allowed Eighth Amendment claims against federal prisons by federal prisoners. So now there was a request here, they believe, for a further extension of Bivens. And going back to Abbasi that Evan mentioned, they said no let's look at what's required here. Step one is to see if in fact the facts of this case fall within Bivens. If not, we're not likely to extend it, especially when we look at some of these special factors that caution with hesitation in doing so. In this particular case, given that it was a border action. The Supreme Court said that when it comes to issues of border security, national security, border relations, the court should not get involved, and they should not extend limits.
0: So the court ultimately found this to be a separation of powers issue, didn't it?
1: It did. Basically, it says that if we're going to extend these causes of actions, it's not going to be the court that does it. It has to be Congress that does it. They have to come up with the legislation rather than asking courts to go ahead and find new types of
0: lawsuits. So Evan, this is a five to four case. What's the importance of the dissent? And what are the takeaways for the lower courts?
2: Uh, Well, let's start with the dissent first, Um, it it, it is a 5-4 to decision, but one has to remember that uh, Justice Ginsburg was one of the uh, dissenters, and so there's really only three continuing votes that we know of uh, for the dissent. Um, On the merits of the dissent, um, what they said was properly viewed. This case is factually indistinguishable from Bivens itself. And number two, in any event, the majority's reading Bivens too narrowly. That Bivens isn't about uh, making the plaintiff whole. It's not just about compensation. It's primarily about deterrence, about deterring government wrongdoing. I think the takeaway overall for lower courts of this decision is that it's your job to ask whether the case in front of you is factually distinguishable from Bivens itself. Carlson versus Green and Davis versus Passman. And if it is distinguishable, then there's no cause of action. That's the end of it. If they are not factually distinguishable, then I do think there's a further question. And the further question is are there nonetheless special circumstances that have developed since the 1970s that would counsel hesitation in the absence of affirmative action by Congress?
0: Lori?
1: Well, I think two things to note here. First of all, there are two justices, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch, who seem to suggest in their concurrence that they would do away with Bivens altogether. But I don't think the court is doing that nor needs to do that. By keeping Bivens very narrow, as they do in this case, it's unlikely there's going to be a lot more Bivens actions. And as Evan noted, I think the dissent is disturbed because they they that the court says, well, there's special reasons to hesitate because we shouldn't get involved in issues of border security or national security. As the dissent points out, you are getting involved by deciding that this is not a cause of action, that somehow it's logical that somebody could sue if the young man had been hit on the American side of the border, but it magically does not become a cause of action because he's killed on the other side. Bivens is not gone. But it is really, really narrow. And the Supreme Court intends to keep it that way.
0: Well, thank you both for our conversation today. I hope to see you again soon.
2: Thank you. Thank you.